Well, continuing through the book of Luke, our text this morning is Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there with us, Luke 11, 14 through 23. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you can say... Or for you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray. Father, I ask that uh, you would open our eyes to the teaching of Christ in this text. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, that takes the power of your Holy Spirit to help our eyes understand your word. God, I ask that you would uh, convict us uh, in our hearts, that we might cling to Christ, that he might be the hope of our life. Lord, we confess that's a work that you do, so we ask that you would do it. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is No Neutral. Uh, This is an offensive title in a culture that lives in neutral, lives in shades of gray. I don't know if we even realize uh, how pluralistic our culture is. There is 4,200 different religions according to Wikipedia. 4,200 different religions according to Wikipedia. And we live in a culture that tells us that every religious worldview is equally valid as another. That in order for us to live alongside each other, we all have to look at each other and say, well, I'm glad that's good for you, and this is what's good for me. This is the water we're swimming in. This is the atmosphere in which we live. And I think many of our neighbors, many of us in our culture are just flat out exhausted 
with all the different beliefs there are out there and essentially give up and say, you know what? I don't even know if there is a God. I don't even know if you could ever know the way anyway because the thing we've been taught is that it's arrogant to believe there's one way and one truth. Religious pluralism actually, uh, as far as we can tell, hadn't come onto the scene until uh, the 17th century, and it really wasn't popularized until the last uh, 150 years where people actually considered this a, a valid way of thinking. Have you ever heard someone say, uh, there's many paths to heaven, or something like, uh, uh, I don't think any one way is right. We all have the same God. Uh, I have a great uncle that uh, was Unitarian, and he believed all these different religions were kind of equally valid with one God. Yet that truth is a suicide truth. It self-destructs at the very statement of it. Because if you have Christianity in which Christ says there's one way to the Father, no one can come to the Father except through me, to say that that's valid, and if you have Islam that says the only way is through uh, uh, the religion of Islam, then to say that both of them are true are a contradiction at the very beginning. Yet, the reason why pluralism can reign in a culture is not is, or is because we do not mainly function off of facts and reason and truth like we would like to think. Most of us like to think we're a scientific people. We look at the proof and we go with what the proof says. Yet the Bible says that man functions out of his heart and that every human heart is in rebellion to God. So that we'll take things that don't even make sense and believe them as long as we don't have to submit to God. And we see this uh, in our text that we're going to look at this morning. This is such an important text. This can help a child understand a complex world. If my daughter came up to me, one of my daughters, and said, 4,200 different religions in the world. Dad, how do I navigate those waters, I would point her to verse 23, the last verse in our text, it says, where Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Amongst all this confusion, Jesus with perfect clarity says, if you lay this paradigm down on the world, you can understand it clearly. There's two groups of people. Those who are with Christ and those who are not with 
Christ. That's offensive to our culture. But it's clarifying and simple, so much so that a six-year-old can understand that concept. So let's look at this text together. The main charge of the message is this, be found with Christ gathering with him. Be found on his side. Be gathering people into his kingdom as he is drawing them in. And point one in your notes is this, reject the prevailing logic of, a, of the day that counters Christ. Reject the prevailing logic of the day. Now, I'm just here to tell you that that'll cost you something. To reject what the crowd is saying will cost you something. You're going to have to be able to live with nearly every TV program telling you nowadays that you're a bigot, that you're closed-minded, but it's always been this way. The desire to please man is always one of the major idols that stands against pleasing God, wanting to please those around us. Let's look at verse 14. And uh, before we read verse 14, I want to remind us of the context, where, where we've come so far in the Gospel of Luke. Right at the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 4, uh, Luke says that he has carefully gathered together information concerning Christ for Theophilus. The Gospel of Luke and Acts was gathered by Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to be an account for Theophilus so that he can have certainty of the things that have taken place. And what we've already seen is that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. His uh, mother, Mary, was promised that she would give birth uh, to a son. He would be called the Son of God. And as Jesus' uh, ministry started... One of the main things he did, this is like a daily activity, is preaching the kingdom of God and healing everyone and casting out demons. Never had the demonic activity ever been so great than when Christ showed up on earth. The Bible tells us that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the present age. When God the Son takes on human flesh, the demonic activity flourished like was never recorded in human history. So a normal thing that Jesus would do would be to preach the kingdom of God, prove it by healing disease, and then he would cast out demons showing power over the demonic and, and over Satan. And 
chapter 4, let me just read a few examples just to remind us of this. When he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, this is Luke 4.31, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went to every place in the surrounding area. Now just think, the popularity of Christ as he's coming on to the scene. Uh, and the word went to every area. Uh, and then it says in verse uh, 37, uh, or 38, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them, and he healed them. This is unbelievably a comprehensive ministry and power and authority Christ has. And then it says, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was Christ. Over and over and over again, this is what he did day after day. Evidence after evidence is on the table. Sign after sign has been done up to this point in Christ's life. As we start this text, he has two months to live before he goes to the cross. He hasn't been hiding. He hasn't been doing this in a corner with his disciples. And then his disciples say, you should see what he does. It's amazing. He's done it in the midst of all of them. Everybody brings their sick. Everybody gets healed. And the demons are scared to death of him. And they fall down and they cry for mercy as they proclaim the reality of who he is. This is the context in which we've already seen in Luke. And so on a very normal day, verse 14, now when he was casting out a demon that was, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. This is Luke 11 now. We're in our text. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. This was a man that couldn't speak. He was deaf and he couldn't speak because of the demon. It's a casting out. <clears throat> a casting out of a demon, and it's also a healing, which was common. And uh, the response was 
a marveling of the people. This is an amazing sign. They obviously knew this man could not speak. And they were amazed at what they saw. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Some of them were saying that he, he does this by the power of Satan. Beelzebul is a Jewish name for the ruler of demons or Satan. That name uh, literally means Lord of the Flies. Uh, and it was a way Israel would mock the Philistine god uh, Beelzebul. And while the Philistines said it meant exalted Lord, Israel would mock them and say, it's the Lord of the dung. The flies are around the dung. So the lowest, most nasty thing a Jew could ever say about someone would be to say that they do what they do by the power of the Lord of the dung. This was their thinking. And this did not come out of the blue. In fact, the shepherds in Israel, the teachers in Israel, were feeding this line to the people of Israel. Now you might ask, did the people of Israel not, were they not logical? Did they not think? Did they, well no, they were, felt the pressure that you feel to go with the crowd, to go with what seems uh, popular. What are people saying? What are the people we look up to saying? The reason why we know this didn't come out of the blue is because a very similar case, but a different case. Uh, this text takes place in Judea, but in Matthew 12, uh, we have a very similar case that takes place in Galilee. And here's what that text says, Matthew 12, 22. When a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. So Matthew was dealing with a blind and a mute man. Luke's only dealing with a, a deaf and mute man. He healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David, the one they've been waiting for for thousands of years, their Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, these are the teachers, they said, it is only by Beelzebul that the prince, or the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. This has been a line that they've concluded that they're going to sell to the people because no one can deny his miracles. Now, understand this. We don't have one record anywhere in the Gospels, that Jesus' opponents ever doubted a miracle. Ever. They were that clear. He didn't heal like the false teachers heal today, where someone with back pain, you know, supposedly gets better, but it's unverifiable. Jesus' miracles were so clear right in front of them, there was no starting to loosen up, they were instantly made well. Men who never walked from birth, jumped up, ran around. No one questioned the miracles. 
You couldn't. It was impossible. We have no early church writings that question the miracles of Christ. The best they could do is have to admit the miracles there, but say, he does it by the power of Satan, not the power of God. In John 7, 19, uh, Jesus says, Has Moses not given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is, who is seeking to kill you. So that crowd had already been fed that lie. Uh, John 8, 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not in right, right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. John 10, 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why, why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So there's some people saying, wait a minute, we know demons. The demoniac, remember him? They had to put him in chains. He would rip off his clothes. He was naked. He would scream and yell at night. He would cut himself with rocks. And they said, really? We know what demon possession looks like. This does, it doesn't seem like this is an insane man that has a demon. In John eleven forty seven, it says, So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? You see, they did not like Christ. They hated him. <laughs> they didn't deny his miracles. They said he does it by the power of Satan. John MacArthur writes this, they called the highest and most holy one the lowest and most evil. They called the one who is pure good, pure evil. They called God the devil. Perfect holiness, wickedness. Truth incarnate, a liar. And branded the son of God, a servant of Satan. Their accusation was ridiculous, but it was also ominous. Since an, er an earlier incident recorded by Matthew, Jesus solemnly warned that those who made it made it were guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is a, one of the saddest texts in the Bible. You have people that ever since Abraham, that really ever since Adam and Eve were given the promise that a woman was going to give birth and her seed would crush the head of the serpent. So Adam and Eve, after they sinned, even they were looking for the Savior. And then Abraham was told that from you, you're going to have a child. You're going to have more children than the sand of the sea and the stars of the heavens. And he'll bring you rest into a land and he will bless you and you'll be a blessing to the nations. Living life in a fallen world is hard and every Israelite was looking to these promises, these prophecies about the one who would come, 
the one that would deliver them, the one whose kingdom would last forever, the one that would be like King David, only better. His throne will last forever. And we get to this point. Jesus has laid it all out. He's only spoke truth. He's only loved people. Even when he's rebuking the Pharisees, it's love. It's an opportunity to repent. And all this evidence is laid out in the, under the table. All the prophecies have been fulfilled. Micah 5.2, the prophet 500 years before Christ, says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, but Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth, yet the, the Caesar Augustus calls for a census to be made. You have to go back to your hometown. Joseph was from Bethlehem. They come into Bethlehem. She gives birth to the Messiah prophecies fulfilled and he comes to his own people and they say he's the devil he does what he does by the power of satan it's one of the saddest texts one of the greatest glimpses into the rebellion of the human heart how could they come to this conclusion why? One answer might be it's the mob mentality. This many people cannot be wrong. Everyone says he does it by the power of Beelzebub. Maybe we should think that. They hated him because he exposed their sin. Jesus being pure light exposed the hypocrisy of the religious system of their day. Jesus says you're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but you're dead rotten bones on the inside. And they hated him for it. They hated him. They were jealous of him. We got to get rid of him. But as is, is insane as this would seem, it really was their only other option. There is no other option. You see, Jesus is claiming to be God. And then they're seeing the miracles and they're like, this is hard because he's doing the miracle. <laughs> he's doing the miracle. He's getting the crowds. We can't argue with his power and his authority. But he's claiming to be God and that can't be true. So the only option we have is he does what he does by the power of Satan. And Jesus, because he's compassionate and loving, he gives them another chance. He reasons with their souls. He asks them to be logical. Verse 16 says, while others uh, sought to test him, kept seeking a sign from heaven. It's not that there's not enough evidence on the table. Even when he's on the cross, they never stop doing this. The wicked, rebellious heart can never see enough. Right? You remember the rich man of Lazarus? The rich man, when he's in hell, says, just let me go out and tell my brothers that, that uh, God is real. Let, let me tell them to repent. And he says, no, if they see someone rise from the dead, that's not going to give them enough proof. If they don't believe the prophets, they're not going to believe if a man raises from the dead. Because when Jesus raised from the dead, they wouldn't even admit that. They had to fabricate more lies. But here's what Jesus says, verse 17. 
But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them. I think this was a large crowd. Evidently, Jesus didn't even hear it out loud, but Jesus knows everyone's thoughts. So imagine, Jesus did this and everyone's marveling, but then a whole bunch of people in their heart are saying, he's doing this by the power of Satan. And then Jesus just happens to speak up. It says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a house divided, uh, or in a divided household falls. Everyone would say, that's a true statement. <laughs> you get a kingdom, it fights against itself. It'll destroy itself. It'll fall. You get a family that fights against itself. It's going to fall. It's a self-evident truth. Everybody knows it's true. And they would be sitting there saying, yeah, that's right. That's true. That's true. But then he gets them. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how, is, how will his kingdom stand? You see, he traps them. He makes them think logically and then shows them that the thoughts of their hearts aren't logical. They're insane. Jesus is saying, okay, so you think that I cast out demons by the power of Satan. So what you're really saying is Satan is in a war with Satan and Satan casts out Satan. That's insane. That's crazy. But out of his kindness, he shows them that their logic is flawed. That the crowds, although there may be many, and although your leaders seem powerful, think, think, is this reasonable? You see, Christianity is not take a leap into the dark, a blind faith. It's logical. It's willing to look at facts. It's reasonable. And Jesus is reasoning with them. And so, we ought to reject the prevailing logic of the day that counters Christ. And secondly, repent from any hypocrisy in your own logic. Often, our logic that we state is proven hypocritical. And here's what he says. For you say I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, he says, let me just grant you the point for a minute. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your sons cast them out? Because the Jews had exorcists that would cast demons out. I don't know that they really could. They're probably a lot like false teachers we see today that claim amazing things, but yet aren't proved to be true often. In fact, we can see some of these in Acts 19, verse 13. We get to see some Jewish exorcists. Let me just read you uh, these uh, five verses. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who... Uh, had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. <laughs> so this is kind of funny. Their job is to cast out demons, but they're looking at Paul and the apostles, and they're like, oh, man, they're really casting out demons. I think theirs is real. 
So what are they saying? They say something like, in the name of Jesus Christ. So let's try it. We're going to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, the one whom Paul proclaims. This, this is what they're doing. The seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, and this is comical. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> the demons are not recognizing this authority. And the man in whom the evil spirit was, in whom was the evil spirit, leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So their sons, when they cast out demons, the demon leaps on them, beats them up, strips them of their clothing, and they run away naked. And Jesus says, you really want to go with your argument? I cast out demons by Beelzebub. By who do your sons cast them out? Are you going to say they cast them out by the Lord and I cast them out by Satan? You really want to go with that logic? And then he says, therefore, they will be your judges. In a sense, he's saying on judgment day, God will show you your sons trying to cast out demons. And he'll show you Christ and God will say, you picked them and said that was from God. And you picked him and said that was from Satan. That's not going to go good for them on judgment day. That will not be good for them. Because essentially what they're saying is Satan is more powerful than God. Because the God exorcists get overcome by the power of the demon but the Satan one actually casts them out. And then he says this, but, verse 20, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, if there was ever a text the Jews knew, it would have been from Exodus when... God drives out the Egyptians with the ten plagues. And in Exodus 8, verse 16, if you plug into your computer and write in the finger of God to see where this comes up, the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments. But then we read this in Exodus 8, 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the son of or say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And remember that Pharaoh's Egyptians are magicians. He's looking at and he's saying, do that same magic trick. We can do that too. Every time, you know, Moses drops his staff, it turns into a snake. They drop their staff and by their magic makes it turn into a snake. But they get to this one and here's 
The magicians tried secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Even pagan Egyptians knew the difference between their little magic show and when the finger of God was there. And yet, the Jews with their Messiah right in front of them will not recognize that this is the finger of God in their midst. And so Jesus says this, but if it is by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You're living in it. You're the ones living in the time when the kingdom of God shows up on earth in with the king. And then he says this, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. So get the picture. There's a strong soldier who is a great fighter standing here guarding the palace. And as long as the strong man stands here, everything in there is safe. Simple story, right? And then Jesus says, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So all that's safe in there until a stronger man comes, beats him up, takes his armor, and then raids his house. Now it's not safe anymore. See, once again, it's a self-evident truth. A six-year-old can understand this. Probably a three-year-old. And then here's what he says. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here's what Jesus is saying. This demonic activity which no man has power over, I come in contact with it and I destroy it. I cast it out. Everywhere it comes, I win. Satan is losing when Jesus is on the earth. All diseases are being healed. All demons are bowing down, begging with mercy. Don't cast us, you know, don't send us into the abyss. Send us into the pigs. They're begging for mercy. The strong man has shown up. The kingdom of God has arrived. And Jesus says, which side do you want to be on? Which side do you want to be on? Because you're either with me or you're against me. Now listen to me. There is not Christians, hardcore Bible-beating Christians, people who believe in Jesus but aren't fanatics, are just, just, just kind of, they, they just believe it, and then those who kill Christians. Jesus is saying that the Satan worshiper that hates Christians and does human sacrifices is just as much against God as the college student who says, I'm indifferent to him. See, Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. 
You're either with me, gathering, doing my work, or you're in rebellion to me. There's two groups of people in the world, those with Christ and those without Christ. No other religion makes sense anyways. All these religions follow these things, and if you do them good enough, you might be led into heaven. Well, if that's true, that God is not that good. Because you can sin against him and you can offend him and he can look at a few good deeds you do and say, that's good enough. Well, you may have a gracious God, but you do not have a holy God and you do not have a God who has justice. Christianity is the only religion where God holds on to his holiness, his justice, and can give you grace. And the reason why is because his son showed up on earth as a man, fully God, the same worth as God. So the man here who offends the infinite God and deserves eternal punishment because God is eternally glorious, who can't do enough good works to overcome this offense against the eternal God, an eternal God-man shows up to stand between them and to pay the price and to take the wrath of God upon himself so that God can be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way. And you're either with him or you're against him. And neutrality is not something you see in the Bible. There's not three groups of people. I read one commentator that said, it's not like God has, these ones are in for sure. These ones definitely aren't in and the Trinity has to call a council together and figure out what to do with these maybes. It's not what the Bible says. You're either with me or you're against me. And so my obvious question to you is, are you with him? Are you, do you love him? Do you see him as king and as good? C.S. Lewis said there's only three options. Jesus is either a liar. He's a deceptive man saying, I'm going to pretend like I'm God and lead all these people astray. Or he's a lunatic. He's self-deceived. He thinks he's all those things. Or he's Lord. And he came up with that to deal with all these people that said, Jesus is a good teacher. He's kind of a morally a good teacher. It's like, no, he's not. If he claims to be God and he's not God, he's a liar or he's a lunatic. So you only have one option. You receive him for who the word says he is or you reject him. And if you just say you're indifferent, you're in rebellion to him. And so I plead with you, Gather with him. Be with Christ. You say, well, how can I be with Christ? Receive him by faith. The Bible does not teach the good ones go to heaven and the bad ones go to hell. The Bible says there is no good ones. Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. There's no one who does good. No, not one. All of us have turned aside, turned to our own way. When we speak the poison of of snakes is under our tongue. When we open our mouth, it smells like an open grave. We don't walk by open graves. 
the testimony about mankind, the heart is deceitful above all else who can know it. Who can, who can understand the depth of the fallenness of man's heart? The Bible says there is no good ones. And the only ones that get saved are the ones who admit they're not good and cling to the only one who was good. And that's Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life you and I could never live. And he doesn't ask us to take a leap into the dark. He came onto the earth. He fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies in his life. He did sign after sign after sign. He preached the truth. He opened people's minds to the scriptures. And yet I know that apart from the Holy Spirit's work on your heart, you will pick an insane alternative to believe in. So my prayer is, as God is working even right now, that he might draw you. We live in a culture that says it makes more sense to believe a piece of dust smaller in a period on a page, 325 billion years ago, exploded. And now I'm a person that cries and laughs and has emotions and I see all this beauty. And there's people that say, I believe, even though no one was there 325 billion years ago, I'm going to hang my hat there rather than God created man in his own image. And Adam and Eve sinned. Death came into the world relationships began to be broken. We understand why we see what we see, but God in his love has come down to rescue you and I. And it's my prayer that you're not neutral. None of you have attacked me oh, for my faith. None of you have uh, opposed me and said you're bad or anything like that. There are those people out there that'll do that. But I assume in a crowd this size, there's a, maybe many neutrals. And it's my prayer that you would take serious, that you go read the book of Luke and say, what am I going to do with Christ? Because your life is going to end with this. You're going to stand before him. He's your creator. He's the one that bled for sinners. And you're either going to stand before him and have him, simply because you cling to him by faith. You trust in him and not your own good works. Or you stiff-armed him and said, I'm going to go live my own life, my own way. My prayer is, is that you would have him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you that we can be on your side Father, I thank you that the way we get on your side isn't by being good enough because if we all admit we're sinful, if you know our thoughts, then it just abhors me to think of what you know my thoughts have been. If you judge us even according to our thoughts, and yet, Lord, in your love, you came to save a rebel like me who not only rebelled in my actions, but my thoughts. Lord, I pray that there would be no one here that would rebel against your kingdom, that would pick an inconsistent, hypocritical logic when it comes to the person of Christ, but that they would submit to him and to your word. 
Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.